Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, I Say Whip It, Whip It Good. A story of Gerald Ford's Whip Inflation Now campaign and the last time Americans had sky-high inflation. The date, June 2022, and my name is Belisarius Avis. Here are some following inflation quotes. By a continuing process of inflation, the government can confiscate, secretly and unobserved, an important part of the wealth of their citizens. John Maynard Keynes I do not think it is an exaggeration to say history is largely a history of inflation, usually inflations engineered by governments for the gain of governments. Friedrich Hayek Inflation is taxation without legislation. Milton Friedman. It is a way to take people's wealth from them without having to openly raise taxes. Inflation is the most universal tax of all. Thomas Sowell. Inflation is when you pay $15 for the $10 haircut you used to get for $5 when you had hair. Sam Ewing. Now whip it into shape. Shape it up. Get straight. Go forward. Move ahead. Try to detect it, because it's not too late to whip it. Whip it good. Devo. I think that stands for de-evolution, but it's been several decades. Gerald Ford, the 38th president of the United States, was what was termed an accidental president. If he is remembered today, it is probably, well, because a really big and expensive aircraft carrier that sets the standard for other really big, really expensive aircraft carriers was named for him. They call them Ford class for a reason. But part of the reason for his less than famous stature is his being the only person to serve as president who had never been elected to either the office of president or vice president. After the resignation of Richard Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew, Ford was appointed in Agnew's place. Then after the later resignation of Nixon himself, Ford assumed office for the remainder of Nixon's term. Throughout American history, there have been several reasons for accidental presidencies or unanticipated ones, but we have not seen one since Ford. This is mainly due to improvements in medicine and health care and better security. The first unintentional president was John Tyler, when William Henry Harrison, suffering from an ailment he garnered during his inauguration, was the first man to die in office. Modern antibiotics could have more likely prevented his death. And in Candace Millard's excellent Destiny of the Republic, the author makes a strong case that had James Garfield been shot in 2022, as opposed to 1881, he would have made a full recovery. Part of this was simple sterilization tactics that are commonplace today, but not in the 19th century. As Adams famously said, this would be John Adams, he is nothing, but he could be everything. The old heartbeat away, but in this case, people had a choice. It was, after all, in Harrison's campaign, Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. People understood that when William McKinley was elected, that if anything happened to him, which it did, that Theodore Roosevelt would then become president. But in 1972, 
When Richard Nixon was elected president, Gerald Ford was serving as a member of the House of Representatives. There was no concept that someday he would assume the Oval Office. And of course, there were the straight-up assassinations of presidents such as Lincoln, McKinley, and Kennedy, and no amount of care could have prevented their deaths. But better security has become the norm, fortunately. The last president to get shot was Reagan 41 years ago. And though the recent attempt on the life of Justice Brett Kavanaugh, something ignored by the leftist media, should bring a stark reminder that vigilance can never be relaxed where prominent people are a factor. So Ford never won that election in his own right. Instead, he lost the 1976 presidential election to relative fresh-faced newcomer Jimmy Carter at the time governor of Georgia, and it was a very near thing. Ford nearly lost the GOP nomination, though, to former California Governor Ronald Reagan that year. And one of the possible factors in Ford's loss to Carter was Ford's decision to grant a presidential pardon to Richard Nixon, his old boss. Ford's desire was not to drag out the scandals of Watergate and his predecessor's administration any further and allow the country to heal and to move on. But many at the time saw the act as a quid pro quo for giving him the vice presidency. In hindsight, sitting here in 2022, Ford made the right move. But this is looking at how things played out over the intervening half century. Things felt differently in the 1970s. So we note that pardon and one of the challenges for Ford was the upsurge of conservatism embodied by Reagan. Think about Republicans in the past. Eisenhower created the interstate highway system, a significant expansion of government, and when he contemplated his run in the early 1950s, many were not certain whether Eisenhower was a Republican or a Democrat. Nixon created the EPA and imposed price controls. One had to go all the way back to Calvin Coolidge to find a true archetypal conservative, and Ford, and especially his vice president Nelson Rockefeller, were not truly conservatives in that Calvin Coolidge mold. So as the conservatives started to take over more and more of the GOP, that is why Reagan was able to challenge an incumbent president for the nomination in 1976. And as we know, he actually won it outright in 1980. So some of the conservatives maybe weren't as uh, weren't backing Ford as much. And there was the pardon. And there was just his personality in and of itself. But overarching to all of this, not just to Ford's presidency, but Carter's and even the early years of Reagan, was one simple word, inflation. Before we get to that, I'm going to give you a brief primer on inflation. Now, given the erudite nature of my audience, you probably don't need it, but I always think it's good to to provide a touchstone before we get into those policies that were attempting to curb inflation, specifically by Ford. So first, a brief primer. Rising prices seem to be determined by two primary factors, supply and mainly true demand. Now, let's say I have two gallons of gas and I'm selling them for three bucks a piece and I am the only guy with the gas. So I got two guys, one driving a Corolla and the other a Ford 150 pickup. The pickup guy suggests he will meet my price of $3, but the other will only pay $2.75 because he doesn't need it that badly. The demand is simply not that intense. So I meet the second guy's price and voila, deflation. But later, I got two more gallons, but this time three guys, 
all driving Ford 250s show up and start bidding up the price of my gas. Inflation! It seems simple, right? But the missing factor, the third one, is to note that I am using U.S. currency in both transactions, and there is the rub. So I'm going to turn this part of the primer over to a real economist, and therefore I'm turning to the invaluable and incredible foundation for economic freedom. And please, dear listener, patronize this site and this organization. It's really a great thing. Writing back in 2008, Howard Betchard Jr. wrote, quote, The single most important principle concerning inflation is Milton Friedman's now famous aphorism, Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. He wrote in Money Mischief, Central bankers, economists, and economic journalists should use this as their screensavers. Inflation occurs, Friedman continued, when the quantity of money rises appreciably more rapidly than output. And the more rapid the rise in the quantity of money per unit of output, output being anything, the greater the rate of inflation. This can occur either by actually printing money or by the magic of the bookkeeper's pen, creating new deposits on the bank's books. To understand Friedman's aphorism, consider this thought experiment. Suppose that tonight, as we sleep, wizard Harry Potter flies across the country and waves his magic wand in a money-doubling charm. The charm does not affect the amounts of goods and services. It only affects money. Every nickel becomes a dime. Every quarter becomes a 50-cent piece. Every dollar becomes two. Every $10 bill becomes a 20. And every checking account doubles its balance. What would we expect to happen to prices over the next day or two? Even if no one knew that everybody else's money holdings had also increased, we would expect to see prices rise substantially over the next few weeks and months. As sellers discover that they can charge more for their goods, than they could yesterday. Picture automobile dealerships. As people perceived an apparent sudden increase in wealth, it's not wealth, it's just money, but they don't know that yet. Many of them would head out excitedly to buy a new car. The dealerships would see many more customers. Keep in mind my gas station thing. Willing to pay much more than before, the dealers would raise their prices very quickly, realizing they could charge more for the cars on their lots, which by the way, there's not like there's more cars out there. It's just people have more money to try to spend on those cars. A similar process would occur at every store, market, online retailer, and real estate agency in the land. And very quickly, prices of just about everything would approximately double. After all, what else would we expect with the same amount of stuff to buy, but twice the money to buy it with? Unquote. But wait, Bell. To do this, to see this kind of inflation in 2022, there would have to be some form of, I don't know, a, a massive infusion of government money in a, in a very recent time frame. Wouldn't, right? Wouldn't that have to have happened? And I give you, dear listener, COVID relief. All governments, federal, state, and local, annual spending combined in a yearly uh, time frame is a roughly $9 trillion. That's everything federal, state, local. Total COVID spending bills now total over $6 trillion in additional spending. I would argue that that $9 trillion is way too much 
as it is. And they just shoved another $6 trillion in additional spending, or nearly 66% of the normal total. $9 trillion of spend from the government is too much. $15 trillion boggles the mind. But wait, there's more. For decades now, from Bernanke to Yellen, the Federal Reserve, whose sole role is supposed to be, supposed to be, currently maintaining monetary quality, has, like so much of Washington, experienced scope creep, keeping money cheap through lower and lower interest rates, some even negative, is happily advocated by both parties. Whether the names are Clinton, Bush, Obama, or Trump, the policy is always the same. Pressure on the Fed to keep money cheap. Do not raise interest rates because that's stifled spending, and stifled spending will mean a slowing economy. This is why they're always advocating for for that. And lately, the Fed has even been asked to help with green initiatives. Talk about scope creep. Okay, but I digress. That is our inflation woes of today. But what about Gerald Ford in the 1970s? Well, right now, we are experiencing something around roughly, I want to say, 8.6% inflation. But in 1974, Ford faced an annual inflation rate of more than 12%. After taking over the presidency in August of that year when Nixon resigned, 12%, 50% higher than what we are experiencing today. According to Investopedia writer Leslie Kramer, the macroeconomic event referred to as the Great Inflation lasted from 1965 to 1982. Now, it's interesting. Why 1965? Hmm, Why would that be the year that all of this inflation began? Well, there was a president at the time named Lyndon Baines Johnson, and one of the things that he initiated in that year was the Great Society. And in that Great Society, he created Medicare and Medicaid and added that as sort of this three-headed creature of entitlement spend, the first one being Social Security, which was initiated in 1935 under FDR. So it was in 1965 that much of the Great Society legislation passed and the spigot of spend began. Also in the 1960s, the government was also spending an incredible outlays of cash for a certain war in a certain Southeast nation called Vietnam. 12% inflation rate in 1974. This is the story of the painful period in the 1970s, and it began, really, the inflation rate really started to kick in hard in 72 and continued until the early 1980s. In his book, Stocks for the Long Run, A Guide for Long-Term Growth, Warden Professor Jeremy Siegel called this time, quote, the greatest failure of American macroeconomic policy in the post-war period, unquote. Upon his inauguration in 1969, Nixon inherited a recession from Lyndon Johnson, who had simultaneously spent generously, that's one word for it, on the Great Society and the Vietnam War, as we had already stated. Despite some some protests, Congress went along with Nixon to continue to fund the war and, remember Nixon is a member of the GOP, increase social welfare spending. In 1972, for example, Congress and Nixon agreed to a big expansion of Social Security, uh, just in time for the elections. Funny that. 
Although the Fed is supposed to focus solely on money creation policies that promote growth without excessive inflation, Burns, head of the Fed at the time, was quickly taught the political facts of life. Nixon wanted cheap money. That meant low interest rates to encourage growth in the short term and make the economy seem strong as voters cast their ballots. Again, this pattern has been repeated throughout several administrations, Democrat and Republican. Adding to the money supply worked for Nixon in the short term. Nixon, in 1972, carried 49 out of 50 states in the election, which, by the way, seems bizarre today. We talk about this era of of red states and blue states and purple states. But in 1972, you would really have to search out and look for any smidge or hint of blue in that map. Now, Democrats, though, easily held Congress. Inflation was in the low single digits at that point. However, the country paid the price in higher inflation once the election year festivities ended. In 1973, inflation more than doubled to 8.8%, roughly what we have today. Later, however, in the decade, it would go to that 12% that we had mentioned before. And by 1980, inflation was at 14%. Now, was the United States about to become another post-World War I Weimar Republic, experiencing the severe effects of crippling inflation? Well, fortunately, that did not happen, and we will see the reason why it did not later. But for right now, keep in mind that that 12% in 1974, when Gerald Ford inherited the office after Nixon's resignation from the Watergate scandal, Gerald Ford had a plan. And here is his plan. It was to create the Whip Inflation Now campaign. Whip Inflation Now or, you guessed it, win. I love that one. Yep. To quote former Raiders owner Al Davis, win, baby, win. Yes, there were even buttons, little win buttons that you would wear upon the lapel of your coat. Unfortunately, one of the problems with podcasting is I cannot... And this really bums me out, show you one of those doozies, but I do encourage you to Google it. In a speech on October 8th, 1974, Ford stated, quote, My fellow Americans, winning our fight against inflation and waste involves total mobilization of America's greatest resources, the brains, the skill, and the willpower of the American people. Here comes the plan, folks. Here is what we must do what each and every one of you can do to help increase food and lower prices, grow more, and waste less, to help save scarce fuel in the energy crisis, drive less, and eat less. Ford slapped on that button as he continued, the symbol of this new mobilization, which I am wearing on my lapel, is this button. It bears the single word, win. I will call upon every American to join this massive mobilization and stick with it until we win as a nation. And I pledge to my fellow citizens that I will buy, when possible, only those products and services priced at or below present levels. Unquote. The president then declared, he said the pledge applied especially to his wife, who, quote, spends all of the money. I signed in blood, said Mrs. Ford. Now, during World War I, 
U.S. President Woodrow Wilson issued a proclamation calling for every Tuesday to be meatless and one meatless meal to be observed every day for a total of nine meatless meals each week. The United States Food Administration urged families to reduce consumption of essential staples to help the war effort and avoid rationing. Conserving food would support U.S. troops and feed those populations in Europe where the war had disrupted food production and distribution. The campaign was logically revived in World War II. And in fact, that concept of reorganizing resources for a massive war effort is one of the few things the terribly odious Wilson actually got right. Yet it is one thing to ask Americans to reduce their lifestyle consumption when millions of young men are serving and dying overseas. Quite another to ask the same in 1974. It should also be noted that it is good leadership to not ask things of others you are unwilling to do yourself. You know, like asking people to wear masks and then discarding them yourself. But asking them to make sacrifices is another thing because you cannot think of a better plan. Writing for the Washington Post about Gerald Ford and Wynn in November 2021, when inflation was still seen as transitory by the Biden White House, by the way, author Ronald Schaefer wrote, quote, The Wynn program got off to a fast start. Russell Freeberg, the White House coordinator of the program, said his tiny staff was hit with an avalanche of citizen inquiries. It was handling a thousand telephone calls a day and more than 200,000 letters of support addressed to Ford, Freeberg told the New York Daily News. Songwriter Meredith Wilson of the Music Man fame even wrote a win song. Who needs inflation? Not this nation! Yay! By mid-November, orders for win buttons passed the 15 million mark. It was the best-selling button since 1971, when more than 50 million smiley face buttons were sold. Yet, signs of skepticism also began emerging. New York Times humor columnist Russell Baker wrote that he wore his win button to the butcher shop and focused its powerful message on the hamburger. The price purred and rose immediately. Back to the White House with this button. This one doesn't work. Give me another. Many, logically, push back against the buy list theme. Staffers for Michigan Governor William Milliken, a Republican like Ford, donned buttons reading BAC for buy a car. Democratic lawmakers, including young Senator Joseph R. Biden Jr. of Delaware, criticized Ford's economic plan as trying to fight inflation with slogans. Unquote. Alan Greenspan, noted economist and one-time head of the Federal Reserve, wrote in his book, The Age of Turbulence, My first experience of policymaking in the Roosevelt Room of the White House almost sent me racing back to New York. It was a senior staff meeting at which the speechwriting department unveiled a campaign called Whip Inflation Now, Win, as they wanted it to be known. That would involve national voluntary efforts and citizen summit meetings to fight rising prices. I agreed with the president's priorities, but I was horrified to learn how his White House staff planned to tackle the issue, Greenspan wrote. The speechwriters had ordered millions of whip inflation now buttons, samples they handed out to us in the room. It was surreal. I was the only economist present, and I said, this is unbelievable stupidity. What? am I doing here? Unquote. But catchy slogans and little buttons were not the only part of Ford's plan, nor was it just to ask people to stop consuming things. 
in addition to the scheme of that, Ford, a Republican, keep in mind again, proposed to impose a surtax on high earners, thus further stifling consumption. Nate Goldberg, a Phoenix advertising professional, began selling a lose button for let others share equally, mocking Ford's theme. One said win stood for where is Nixon? Oh my, I like that one. In his highly sympathetic biography of Ford, historian Douglas Brinkley wrote, quote, as sensible as Ford's 1974 common sense initiative and the truths behind his speech were, unfortunately, the vast majority of Americans were not buying it, unquote. When I say sympathetic, I mean Brinkley's book presents the danger of all biographers, and that is falling in love with their subject. You spend hours, days, months, years looking through this person's paper, reading their diaries, reading their speeches, and at some point you realize bias is set in. I love my subject, and I do not want to write anything bad about them. At one point, Brinkley admonishes the American people of 1974, quote, he, Ford, also urged his constituents to stop wasting so much food, pointing out economic foolishness of buying more than they could eat and throwing out the rest, unquote. For one, Brinkley wrongly labels Ford a conservative. Really? A conservative who raises taxes and thinks it's appropriate to nanny Americans about their food choices? I would also like to comment, this is a little digression here, folks, on that wasting food thing. Do you know who suffers when food is thrown out? The person who does the throwing. That's who. The entire, but what about other people, is bunk. Do you know what happens when people cut back on food? Everyone suffers. The company that employs people making the seeds, the farmers that are growing the crops, the drivers who are bringing the food to the packaging center, and the center itself. Then another driver brings the food to the grocery store. Then the workers at the grocery store are there. There are about five to six stops from the seeds to the farms to the table. And everyone in that ecosystem suffers when consumers do not, you know, consume. And this does not include all those other parts of the food ecosystem. Even on an organic farm, implements like shovels need to be bought and all the people employed around the packaging. Heck, even media suffers without the ads. Without the consumption, there is no need for production and everyone suffers. Okay, I, I, my digression is over, but I always find that one a little bit insufferable. Now, in this case, we are talking about inflation. So everyone suffers from that. And our opening quotes are, have made that quite clear but the answer is not artificially, inorganically to reduce demand, but rather to increase supply and simultaneously reduce the amount of money sloshing around in the system. So the response to record high gas prices is not just drive less, you selfish bastard. It is to increase the supply, which is why Biden, eerily, is going hat in hand to every unsavoring oil despot from Venezuela to Arabia. And of course, the one thing he could do to increase demand is reverse his decision on the Keystone oil pipeline or open up additional domestic drilling. You may not have seen it, but there is a collar around Joe Biden's neck which prevents that. And the leftists, including the eco-warriors, are holding the leash that attaches to that collar. Nevertheless, as Brinkley notes, Americans did not stop consuming. 
Whether that would have been a factor is problematic, but we know in hindsight that win, for obvious reasons, was a dud. You're not going to fight inflation with slogans and buttons. Even comedian Bob Hope, a Ford friend, quipped, quote, President Ford went on television to tell us how we can whip inflation, and within half an hour, the price of whips went up 50 cents, unquote. Ouch. Forget Walter Cronkite. If you lose 1970s Bob Hope, something is amiss. In March 1975, just six months after the big launch, financial columnist Sylvia Porter, who headed Ford's Citizen Anti-Inflation Group, announced the end of WIN. Quote, as an acronym, it is dead and God bless it, unquote, she said. From the 1980s until 2021, uh, way before Putin invaded the Ukraine, we enjoyed inflation-free economies. So what ended the 1970s inflation? I am pretty certain it was not those buttons. The great inflation period would finally come to an end once later Fed Chair Paul Volcker pursued a bold but painful contractionary money policy to control it. In other words, he took money out of the system. Eventually, aggressive monetary policy tightening in the late 1970s and 1980s sharply reduced inflation in advanced economies and established central bank credibility. Although, and here's the challenge, often at the cost of deep recessions. For example, short-term interest rates almost quadrupled between the end of 1976 and mid-1981. In the wake of these interest rates increases, U.S. output contracted by more than 2% between early 1981 and mid-1982. In some advanced European economies, central banks prioritized inflation control and responded earlier. As a result, the inflation cycle in several of those economies was less pronounced than in the U.S., but recessions also accompanied those in the early 1980s. Two things keep Biden from taking the necessary steps to end the inflation that we are seeing today. One, the possibility of recession through rate hikes. And two, more insidious, the refusal to look at the reduction of government spending because, as noted, he is enthralled to the left. But let's be clear about inflation in terms of both sides. One of my great frustrations with the GOP, and one that led to the election of Donald Trump and the rejection of 14 to 15 typical so-called establishment Republicans was that they often seemed to have the same policies as the other guys. Nixon created the EPA. H.W. Bush raised taxes. George W. Bush oversaw federal expansion in the education sphere. And the likes of Mitt Romney and John McCain seemed to do no better had they been elected. But also to be clear, Trump is in lockstep on the policy of big government as well. For all of his bluster and badgering, he took Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid off the table immediately as part of his economic policies. It was one thing to cut taxes, but another to curtail government spend. I love it when Trumpists extol Trump but malign W. Bush, but keep in mind, George W. Bush is the only president since Reagan to try and failed, but still at least he tried to address Social Security spend. And it was the Trump administration and GOP Senate that approved the first $4 trillion of COVID spend. I have often noted that a key factor in our divisiveness is that we have less things to fight over. 
Off the table is the size of government, including all of that government spend and all of that injection of money into the supply. So both parties are culpable. And until we address the vast spending power and reduce the presence of easy money from the Fed, we will face the scourge of inflation. There are no easy answers to this, not even a slick button. This is Bell Avis. Thank you for listening to the latest conservative historian podcast. And check out all of our podcasts on our Buzzsprout feed site. Thank you.